This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery... Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the... Must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Instant Genius, the bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Thomas Ling, digital editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. Now, we've all heard of ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, but there's a lot scientists don't know for sure about the condition. From ADHD's causes to what actually defines the disorder, or if it's a disorder at all, is all hotly debated. So, to guide us through the new research of ADHD, today I'm joined by one of the world's biggest experts on the topic, Edmund Sunaga Bark. He's Professor of Psychology, Psychiatry and Neuroscience at King's College London. Hello, Edmund. Welcome to the show. Hello, Thomas. Fantastic. Okay, so I'm going to start off with the big question, which is, what is ADHD? You know, is it a condition, a dysfunction, or just a difference? Right. Yeah, thanks. So attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, the clue is in the name, is defined uh, as a disorder generally. And it's classified specifically as a neurodevelopmental disorder. So it sort of goes together with other neurodevelopmental uh, disorders or conditions uh, such as autism or developmental coordination disorder. So it's very much within that sort of that sort of um, grouping of, of uh, conditions. ADHD is differentiated from them in terms of a number of defining features. Now, because at its core, there are three sort of related groups of behavioural characteristics. Inattention, such as having difficulty focusing or concentrating or avoiding distraction. Impulsiveness or impulsivity, which is, for instance, acting too quickly without thinking through the consequences. 
and hyperactivity sort of speaks for itself. So that's at the core. But the disorder itself requires a number of other characteristics or other criteria to be met. So it's not enough just to have inattention, impulsivity and hyperactivity. This has to be excessive for age, particularly obviously when thinking about children. I mean, little kids, three and four year olds are generally uh, much more active than six and seven year olds. So obviously it's got to be age linked. It's got to be expressed in more than one situation. So it's, they call it pervasiveness. So it's got to be pervasive. And that's important because it, these behaviors shouldn't just be a function of being in a particular situation where, say, you feel uncomfortable. So maybe the classroom or, or you know, with friends or whatever. It's got to, got, to, got to span situations. So it's more of a characteristic of the individual, independent of the context. The next important one is it's got to have a childhood onset. That's still the case. It's a neurodevelopmental condition. It should have a childhood onset. So that basically means that the symptoms manifest according to current criteria before the age of 12. So that's another important criteria for the diagnosis. And most crucially, and this applies to all inverted commas disorders, it has to have an impact on your everyday functioning, a negative impact on your everyday functioning. So that could be school functioning, that could be social relationships, that could be difficulties at home, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not enough to just have the behaviours to an excessive level. You have to have this sort of complex set of contextual criteria as well. So a lot of that seems to be covering sort of behaviours, but what about neurologically, sort of speaking? So how does the mind of somebody with ADHD be different from the quote-unquote normal brain? Yeah, I mean, the mind and the brain, I mean, there's an interesting little um, <laughs> confounding of terms there, Thomas. But let's focus on the brain, because the mind is a, more, a bit more um, esoteric concept. But let's the brain, in terms of the brain, so the first thing to say is... Uh, that although sort of simplistic accounts, uh, pop science accounts, do tend to talk about ADHD as a brain disorder uh, of this or that brain region or process, there is no neurobiological brain-like signature that marks the brain of an indiv any individual with ADHD from any other person. Or in other words, you can't wow. diagnose ADHD based on brain structure or function. I mean, that's increasingly clear um, and and if you've ever seen a, a picture that purports to show an ADHD brain and then a normal brain next to it that is really what do they call it fake, fake news <laughs> disinformation <laughs> I would call it because it's simply not the case so obviously the focus in neuroscience including the work we've done has rather been on, on examining statistical differences between groups of people with ADHD and other groups of people. So these initial models, these initial sort of attempts to do that, going back, I suppose, 20 years now, you know, brain imaging has been, in, uh, has been um, kind of revolutionary in, in, in understanding the brains of, uh, of people with ADHD. But they, they tended to, to, they tended to focus on... Um, the notion that ADHD was a single neurobiological entity and that the underlying problem in the most popular model was 
this thing called executive dysfunction. And that's the kind of failure of a set of brain, higher order brain processes that help regulate your thought and your action. So um, uh, specific functions would be inhibitory control, the ability to um, uh, stop a response or a thought when needed or requested. And in some way that's impaired in people with ADHD. And that that links to a particular brain system that connects sort of subcortical regions, particular striatum, with prefrontal regions of the brain. Very much that we know uh, underpin these higher order brain functions. So that was the model. And it was based on relatively small scale studies and sort of, I would say, somewhat simplistic thinking simplistic in terms of neuroscience and the way the brain is organized and structured. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That's incredibly interesting in itself to think if there's no simple sort of neurological uh, markers of ADHD, and I think some people would ask, well, what actually causes ADHD then? We can think about underlying genetic and environmental risks, and they'd be different for different people. I mean, obviously, we know that you know ADHD is highly heritable, runs in families, and we now know some of the work we've done uh, with you know, consortia, big sort of genetic consortia, that we know some of the genes that seem to be implicated. They don't account for an awful lot of the variants yet, but we're building it up. We're getting more predictive, uh, more predictive power. But they're different for different people, you know. So it's not just very variable in terms of the brains. It's very variable in terms of the underlying risks, the genetic risks, and the environmental risks. So, for instance, we know that for some people having a very difficult um, pregnancy or or a delivery. So sort of um, pre and perinatal, we call it pre and perinatal risk, can be important. So, for instance, if you suffered hypoxia, you know, during um, delivery as a, as a child, we know that's a risk factor. So it's this, very, it's this kind of complex uh, interplay between multiple genetic and environmental risk factors um, that kind of create an underlying spectrum of neurobiological risk, but are very different for different people. And then that depending, and this is the way we think about it, and we're still studying it and, and trying to put the links together, but those different genetic and environmental risks then manifest in different brain alterations, which then, quite amazingly, if you think about it, lead to a common clinical outcome in, a, in co- called ADHD. So it's like it's got a it's got a a common final output, although that's itself very variable, obviously. Um, but the causal pathways are, are kind of multiple and inter- interacting. So it's it's um, I think the th- the biggest thing we found, which is it's a bit disconcerting, really. So thirty years ago. We all thought that our goal 
was probably an understanding ADHD. To the extent that we could actually improve treatments was maybe 15 years, 15 years away. Now, what we've learned in the, those 15 years is that actually the goal is probably 100 years away because what we've learned is it's not a simple linear um, um, pathway or a single simple linear pathway. It's got multiple uh, interacting factors that create these diverse pathways. And what do you do then clinically? Um, you, you know, if, you, if you're trying to have a rational model for development of new interventions that are going to help people with ADHD, uh, based on science, you're going to be targeting these individual pathways in different ways. So, for instance, take it, take the example of the subgroup of people that we think have executive function problems. Now, they and only they are probably going to benefit from training in executive function. If you don't have executive function problems, then that treatment approach is probably, well, from a rational point of view, shouldn't have any benefits, really. Certainly, it, it, it can't, it can't uh, resolve the underlying problems because they're not there. So how can ADHD be sort of treated and, and can it ever be quote unquote cured? So, so I mean, in terms of this, as I mentioned, this, this heterogeneity of, of um, processes and structures and brain, um, the different parts of the brain and the different brain networks are involved. And the, 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 we know we have an effective intervention at least in terms of controlling symptoms and that, that that's called psychostimulant medication people will have heard of uh, ritalin for instance which is methylphenidate it's a psychostimulant medication and of yeah i think i mean i'm not a clinician i'm a scientist but as i as uh, my clinic, clinical colleagues tell me that Compared with nearly every other medication for a neurodevelopmental or a mental health problem, this is unbelievably effective. And this has been shown with you know enormous number of randomized controlled trials and so forth. So it suppresses symptoms. Do, do, do you know how it suppresses the, those symptoms? Yeah, yeah, we pretty much know the neurochemistry of the impact of methylphenidate. Um, it increase, it basically increases the concentration of a neurotransmitter called dopamine within particular pathways and in particular and especially the circuits these frontostriatal circuits but the crucial th crucial thing about it um, which increases the signal which helps you focus and concentrate that's the sort of model but the um, the, the kind of really um, um, fascinating thing about methylphenidate and the other psychostimulants amphetamine and so forth that are used, uh, is that it doesn't just target this system. It's a very nonspecific um, drug. So it hits, it hits a lot of these systems that are implicated in the complex underlying causal pathways of ADHD. So that's kind of why it's effective, I think. That's my interpretation. It hits reward networks. It hits you know increasing dopamine function in all those networks. What about these sort of the non-drug approaches? So yeah. does things like therapy or attention training, can that work? Yeah, but before, 
get onto that, what, what I'd like to just say is that, and this is really important caveat, is that we now know, of course, that medication isn't the full solution for people with ADHD. Absolutely not. It's good at controlling symptoms in the short term. We know actually in the long term that it doesn't seem to lead to more beneficial outcomes. And that's got to be our real focus. I mean, obviously, it's good to manage ADHD uh, in the here and now. Um, Helps with learning, helps with developing social relationships and so forth. But in the long term, you know, there's the very famous study called the Multimodal Treatment of ADHD Study, the MTA study. And that's been kind of foundational in many ways. And what they've done is they did a randomized control trial, medication, medication and psychosocial, non, non-pharma, like you say, psychological interventions. But then that was 14 months. And then after that, they followed these young people up and they followed them up into young adulthood now. And what they've shown is that actually ADHD impairment persists in all the kids in the trial independent or irrespective rather of whether they received medication in the trial or any medication they received since the trial. So it doesn't seem to be a relationship between long-term outcomes and medication exposure. This is hotly debated, but that seems to be the takeaway message from this, this famous study. So psychological treatments, you know, and um, as part of the European ADHD guidelines group, I've led the, our analyses of, of psychological treatments. And we've looked at, for instance, parent training, where you obviously look to improve parenting skills. We've looked at cognitive training, like you mentioned, uh, attention training, working memory training. We've looked at neurofeedback and so forth. And the bottom line is that none of these um, are effective in controlling AD, core ADHD symptoms. Um, if you use the most rigorous evidence, um, um, so they can't be used in the place of medication in, in terms of that short-term control. Now, now, of course, they may help in other ways, you know, in terms of improving functioning independent of these improvements in symptoms. So, for instance, social skills training is pretty good at training social skills, <laughs> which is just as well because that's, that's what it's developed to do. And this, this can be really helpful for people with ADHD. Um, you know, so for instance, parenting, parent training, as, as it's called, um, you know, is, re- is developed to help m- parents manage challenging behavior. And it's very good at that with kids with ADHD. It doesn't get rid of their ADHD, but it helps the parents um, um, sort of restructure their approach to their child. So that's a, pl- that's a positive so they, you know, these can have additional benefits, even if they're not really treating the ADHD. So that's a really important message. But more generally, in terms of treatment, I think if you, if you move from the notion that ADHD is a disorder that needs treating to that it's a different way of thinking or being, then I, and, and, you know, the, the focus becomes much more on trying to help people with ADHD thrive um, in the long term rather than just controlling their difficult behavior as if it's just a clinical problem or just a kind of a, a, social, um, a social cost. And that's sometimes the way it's phrased even, which is you know, a, little, a little bit um, undermining 
I think, for people with ADHD. So does ADHD exist on a sort of sliding scale? I mean, do we all have ADHD to some degree? So obviously, the first thing to say is that the the diagnosis is categorical. There's no sliding scale in the diagnosis. Either got it or you've not got it. And for a long time, we assumed that that was actually reflecting reality. And now we know, like you say, that ADHD is actually a dimension. It's a continuous dimension, at least at the level of the symptom severity. You know, there's no point in the symptom severity range going from moderate, you know, low to moderate to high. There's no point at which you can say there's a non-arbitrary cutoff. You know, there's no point at which all of a sudden a different thing emerges. Um, you know, and uh, th- that's been tested in lots, lots of different ways. But one of them, for instance, let's take let's take genetic factors. So, from studies of hereditary, we know that the 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 uh, ADHD is equally heritable in the moderate range as in the severe range. There's no difference, and in the low range, it's it's a continuous sort of uh, factor underlying that. I get the, the key thing, I guess, to say is that it's a continuum, but every single mental health problem or every single neurodevelopmental condition is also a continuum. Schizophrenia is a continuum. Autism is a continuum. You know, all that means is that around the threshold, it's very difficult to diagnose <laughs> because it's small. Diff- but if you see a really ADHD person with severe ADHD and you compare them with a neurotypical person, it's not difficult at all to see the difference. It's around the thresholds that you it, it becomes difficult clinically. I, and I would say that around those thresholds, there's great work by uh, a researcher called Owens showing that actually diagnosing people in subclinical or you know uh, around those thresholds can be a little bit damaging. It can lead to long-term uh, difficulties for those people. So you need to be clear kind of a clear manifestation, I would say, uh, is really important before you make the diagnosis. Earlier, you were saying that ADHD really has to sort of show symptoms in childhood, but there's been a lot of growth in talk around adult ADHD. You know, can somebody develop ADHD later in life or is it a case of them being undiagnosed? Yeah, that's a really hot topic. Um, the Obviously, adult ADHD is, is, is not a new phenomenon. ADHD is a neurodevelopmental condition, and we've known for a long time that symptoms and impairment persist into adulthood. So, you know, prospective longitudinal studies, which have followed ADHD people from childhood to adulthood, have shown, yeah, many of them have still got ADHD. Most of them have still probably got ADHD in one form or another. But that's not really the issue. The issue is... Um, ADHD that's first diagnosed in adulthood, as you say. Now, at the moment, you can only do that if you can show or you can prove to your clinician or convince your clinician that you did have a childhood onset. That's still part of the diagnostics for adult ADHD. The question is um, a twofold, really. First of all, the information about your childhood is retrospective. And it's usually the person themselves that is giving the the account. Although, you know, best clinical practice would have somebody else corroborating, but that's often not the case, not not possible. And of course, that's very open to misremembering and also to systematic bias. You know, your state of mind when you're giving that information may actually affect your recall of your childhood. So 
it's probably the case that quite a lot of people who are getting ADHD diagnoses, this is de novo. There wasn't really sufficient symptoms or impairment in childhood to say they had a childhood form. The big question, I think, is, is what you said. So there's lots of evidence that people can meet the criteria for ADHD in adulthood even though they didn't have childhood difficulties. Um, and, you know, the, the question is for that, of you know, is, is that the same sort of thing as a childhood persistent type? And what it looks like, if you compare childhood onset ADHD that's persisted into adulthood and de novo adult ADHD, they do look rather different. Um, so, for instance, the genes that drive childhood ADHD don't seem to drive adult onset ADHD. The patterns of psychological impairment seem rather different and cognitive impairment seem rather different. So there are lots of ways it differs. There's also a higher incidence, probably, of substance abuse. There's a higher exposure to stress. So you can see it might have a totally different underlying set of causes. Um, does it mean we shouldn't treat it as ADHD? Well, I think the court is, you know, is out on that. It all depends on whether interventions are effective um, in this group of people, I guess, and whether we need in the next diagnostic manual, I think that's going to be called DSM-6, whether we need an adult onset form of ADHD or, or, or call it a completely different thing. I don't know. Is there any sort of um, concrete idea of the ratio of the people who have ADHD? Uh, and is there any evidence that it's sort of undiagnosed in certain groups of people as well? So, so that's a really great question. And um, so for in, so um, the rates of ADHD in the population that is nothing to do with diagnosis. You just go out into the population and you give people an assessment. They, they're pretty constant over time. There's about 5 to 6% of people meet the diagnostic criteria for ADHD. And fascinatingly, they're quite consistent across different nations and cultures. And about 5 to 6%. Diagnosis is a totally different thing. And in, in some areas... Diagnostic rates get up to 15%. Now, in some countries and some parts of countries, so the US diagnostic rates are, are really high, and many people interpret that as overdiagnosis or really low quality diagnostic procedures. Um, and it's probably driven a bit by farmer advertising, it's probably driven a bit by school demands, it's probably, you know, achievement orientated culture or whatever. Um, but in other countries like the UK, it's been chronically underdiagnosed. Um, and we're just starting to correct that now. So more people are getting the care that they need because more people are getting the diagnosis. So it varies an awful lot from country to country. Now, in terms of underdiagnosed groups, yes, there are there are clear groups where um, for very particular reasons where the diagnosis hasn't been given. And, and obviously the main one, I would say, is um, girls and young women. Um, they, the rates of diagnosis are much lower in girls than boys. Um, some of this might be due to the fact that ADHD is just less prevalent. That's clearly true. But, but quite a lot of it may be due to the fact that we're kind of working on a phenotype or a clinical presentation that is very male-centric. 
Um, because don't forget, the, the, the diagnosis of ADHD, initial formulation came out of probably of, you know, chats between psychiatrists about patients that they'd seen. And those tended to be all boys. So, you know, we're doing research now with a PhD student of, of mine, Anna Maria, who are looking at kind of other aspects of female diagnosis that have been totally missed uh, in, the, in the clinical workup. Are the things that are particularly prominent in the female case compared to the male case that might equalize the rates a bit? And what, what, what sort of factors are involved there? Yeah, well, we are, we are very, we're looking at a number of things. One of the things we're looking at is this so-called uh, camouflaging or masking. And what girls are very good at doing, it seems from our investigations, is covering over their most obvious aspects of ADHD. They kind of mask it. They kind of suppress it, uh, particularly at school. At home, they're a little, they let it go a little bit. But at school, they tend to try and suppress. So they're not – because there's a sense, I think, that ADHD is like a, a male stereotype. And girls still, you know, with, to, them, to their mates and to the, probably to the teachers, they want to be considered as, as girls. And so they suppress this, this sort of uh, – these sort of behaviours, impulsive, hyperactive behaviours. So they're very good at that. I mean, there comes a point when that's no, not possible. Um, and the costs of suppressing and masking, emotional costs, uh, are probably quite high. So by the time these girls get into adolescence, they've often uh, developed all sorts of difficult mental health uh, situations, like eating problems, eating disorders, uh, self-harm, very low self-esteem, and it all sort of comes out um, and they start to get diagnosed with ADHD, this underlying ADHD, underlying a lot of these other problems. So that's one area. Earlier diagnosis for girls, I think, is something we need to really, really focus on, and that's certainly one something we're trying to look at. What would you say to people listening who might think that this ADHD condition doesn't seem to be that well understood neurologically and then the treatment is also quite limited as well so is it that we actually don't understand quite a lot about ADHD? <laughs> I think we are becoming increasingly aware of how little we understand <laughs> about ADHD <laughs> so um, you know I, I, I'm, I'm perhaps more than some of my colleagues I, I'm not I'm pessimistic but I do recognize the field is somewhat in a state of crisis you know the idea that science will promote better care for people with ADHD um, for some reason hasn't really delivered and I think it's because we've come into it thinking it's a relatively straightforward problem to solve these genes this brain this outcome target the genes or the brain be fine but of course life's much more complicated than that, as I've hopefully I've, I've illustrated. And there's, uh, it's, it's a much more complex and heterogeneous problem. Uh, that's not even taking account of circumstances, which I've just talked about in terms of social deprivation or cultural stereotypes and so forth. So I think in a way, the as we move to a more granular understanding of the particular risks, I think we will be able to add value. So uh, um, so I'm optimistic in that regard, but I think it's a much longer term program. But in a way, maybe that's not the main issue. The main issue 
is to focus on what this arc of growth. And so we're not going to treat it as if it's as if it's just a clinical problem or just a social burden. We're going to try and promote growth through uh, focusing on environments and experiences of all these young people. That was Edmund Sunaka-Bark, Professor of Psychology, Psychiatry and Neuroscience at King's College London. Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius, brought to you by the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine, which you can find on sale now in supermarkets and newsagents, as well as your preferred app store. You can, of course, also find us online at sciencefocus.com. Thank you.